But you're going to have a great time because my wife and daughter, some of the teachers, and my wife was laughing so hard upstairs last night preparing for it that it was distracting me in the basement. I said, what are you laughing about? She said, it's this video that Chris Peterson sent us. It's so funny. The kids are going to think it's great. So anyway, speaking of funny, hearing the song uh, this morning, which was delightful, Reminded me of when my kids were younger, we would sit around Christmas time, we would sing Christmas carols after dinner, and <clears throat> we would, I'd let them stand on the chair for the last one. Go tell it on the mountain, so they'd stand on the chair and sing the song. It's awesome. It's also funny when they would, we'd try to get them to not laugh when they sang about ox and ass. And so you'd win the award if you didn't start laughing as a kid saying that. Memories are good. Memories are good. Well, the once popular, ultra popular talk show interviewer Larry King was once asked if he could interview anyone ever throughout history who he would want to interview. And he said, that's easy. If I could interview anyone, it would be Jesus Christ. And I would have one question for Jesus Christ. The one question I would have for Jesus Christ is, are you indeed virgin born? Are you indeed virgin born? And he said, because based upon his answer to that question, I could interpret all of human history. I think Larry King is right. I think he's right about that. If Jesus is virgin-born, it influences our understanding of all of human history. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. It's the virgin birth account that you're probably familiar with. We'll look at verses 18 through 25. As we do that, as we look at this sort of unfolding drama, because it is narrative, uh, I'm going to highlight five different segments of this unfolding drama regarding the virgin birth of Jesus. And I'm going to say virgin birth again and again and again because that's how I think of it. But really we're talking about virgin what? Virgin conception. Okay? Virgin conception. The virgin conception of Jesus or his virgin birth, if you prefer that. Number one, the reality of the virgin birth is in verse 18. The reality of the virgin birth, we see there in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So betrothal, think engagement, but it's legally binding, could have lasted up to a year in time. So they're formally engaged and they've not been together yet in the biblical sense. They've not been together sexually yet. So here we have a pregnant virgin, which is a problem, right? It is a problem. It's a problem if you are the one who's betrothed to Mary. And if you know you've not been with her, you've not known her using the biblical way of explaining it, it's a major problem. What is going on? Something here is supernatural. And our text gives us a preview where it says, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The idea is super 
natural oversight, supernatural control. Unlike pagan religions where they would talk about deities having sexual relationships or romance with human beings and all this kind of man-made stuff, of course men make this kind of stuff up. It's not the idea at all. By the Holy Spirit, supernatural divine intervention, oversight, it's creation kind of talk. This is extraordinary. So that's the idea. It's not describing sex in any way, shape, or form. Something miraculous happened. She's still a virgin and she's pregnant. What in the world? This this can't happen by any kind of natural means. It's not in the water. What in the world is going on with child by the Holy Spirit? Not promiscuity, but divine superintendence. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes and you say, this is a a problem, right? No amount of explaining in the world is going to solve this problem. There's no alibi. He might have been young, probably a teenager. But he wasn't dumb. This can't be. This can't be. A pregnant virgin. I like saying it. Because it's apparently nonsense. Okay, plot thickens. Let's move on. Number two, the second segment in this drama of Jesus' supernatural birth, the natural response to the virgin birth, the reasonable response to the virgin birth at face value. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just or a righteous man, a a law-respecting, law-abiding, wanting to honor God kind of man, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's it's common sense, right? Someone who he thought loved him enough to be his wife, and no doubt he loved her, still in love with her. It's confusing. What do we do here? I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to do what's right towards someone who I love and who I thought at least loves me and still acts like they love me, he's going to divorce her. But he's going to try to do it in as respectful a way as possible. If I were him, if you were him, and if you were a godly person, and you were truly in love, this is what you would do. This is what you would do. And then the change agent comes. And the change agent is going to have to be not of this world because no amount of of splaining, right? No amount of splaining can get this problem taken care of. So something has to come from outside that would be convincing to Joseph and it's going to be from the outside, it's going to be divine revelation. That's going to be the change agent. What doesn't make sense five minutes before is now going to make sense. This is, this is, 
unexplainable apart from supernatural realities. Let's go on. Let's move on to number three. A third segment in the drama of Jesus' supernatural birth is the theological significance of the virgin birth. Verses 20 and 21. I love this. This is a high point. How about verse 20? But as he considered these things, what, what would that have been like, right? As he considered these things, behold, Matthew likes to use that word to liven things up. Something supernatural, something extraordinary, something super important. Behold. Some translations say lo. I don't know what in the world that's about. The idea though is behold. Right? Something extraordinary. Behold an angel of the Lord. So divine revelation through an angel. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. I wrote in my margin verse 16. That takes us back to the genealogy of things. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Don't fear what? Don't fear the ridicule. Don't fear that one who looks like an adulterer is going to commit adultery again. Because by the way, this would be considered adultery even though they weren't technically married yet. Marriage not consummated. But it would have been considered adulterous because they're betrothed. Don't fear Don't fear whatever else he has intended there. And then he explains, verse 20, look there with me if you would. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. God, God intervened supernaturally. Supernatural pregnancy is what he's telling him. Let's tease that out in our minds. If this is divine superintendence, miraculous, that means He will be like no other. Extraordinary conception, extraordinary individual. Now we're on to explaining history. So let's keep going. Verse 21, he tells them the purpose of this extraordinary, supernatural conception. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So you're going to accept him as your son. You're going to name him. So by him naming him, he's accepting him as his son. But then the meaning fits the purpose. How about verse 21 where we keep going? You name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And that is one of my very, 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 very favorite verses in the Bible. And it should be one of yours too. Jesus means Savior name him Jesus. You name him. You're accepting this reality and You name Him Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. And that, my friends, is pregnant with meaning. That is huge. He's going to be the Savior. And He's going to be the Savior of His people. Oh, and if you read the lineage, uh, 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 the lineage that we read last week, that would be representative of, of His people, and that would include Jews and Gentiles, 
This, is fit, this fits the rest of the New Testament. You don't have to wait for the Apostle Paul to come up with this. He's going to come and he's going to save, to rescue, to deliver. Okay, He comes in a long line of messiahs, a long line of Christ, and they're all deliverers, but he's the ultimate one. The other ones were foreshadowing. He will save his people from their sins. He will deliver his people from their sins. And I love the verse so because it's probably better than we even realize sometimes. It took me a long time as a Christian to realize the significance of what this is saying. He will deliver his people from their sins. It's not that he will make them deliverable. He's not going to come to make everyone potentially saved potentially forgiven. No, He's the victorious deliverer. He will come and He will save them from their sins. Now this makes some people really uncomfortable because then we start thinking, wow, this has implications and this has implications regarding scope, intent. He will save His people from their sins. He's victorious. This is like in in John chapter 6 where he uh, He will lose none of them. This is, this is awesome. This is grand. He will save His people from their sins. Even the verbiage in the Greek New Testament, for He, emphatic, He will save His people from their sins. Divine, unique, extraordinary, virgin birth, we're going to also see that, well, we're seeing here, he's born of of Mary. He's human. Galatians chapter 4, I want to talk about that on Christmas Eve. Human being, he's the God-man. He's the one who comes from above, uh, and he's the one who is part of the real world that we're a part of. He's the extraordinary one. He has to be to be the, the divine mediator between God and man, the man Christ, the man Christ Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. He came to save. He came to teach truth, yes. He always taught the truth, yes. He did everything right, so He's the ultimate example. But think about that. The ultimate example only shows you that you're a failure. Think about that. It's true. He's the ultimate example. He did everything perfectly. And that's not good news to you because it shows you how bad you are. It shows you that you're a sinner. He came to save His people from their sins. He's going to give Himself the just for the unjust. I love this. I love it also that this is at the beginning of Matthew. The beginning of Matthew tells us and teaches us how to read the whole book of Matthew. It gives us the preview. So when we're reading through Matthew's gospel account, we're not gonna, I'm not going to preach through Matthew next. Uh, or this morning. But when we're reading through the whole narrative, the whole storyline, we realize why he's here, why he's doing what he's doing. All along, it's because he's the Savior. We, we, we already know that. And so we read it that way. It's amazing to consider. He came to save his people from their sins. And that is your biggest problem. That is my biggest problem. It's sin. It's sin. We're all violators of God's law. That's what sin means. So God says, love me appropriately as the one true living God, creator of heaven and earth. Love your neighbor appropriately as yourself, as a fellow human being and all the implications thereof. 
and we don't, and that's called sin. Jesus comes. He's the unique virgin-born, divine and human, two natures, to be the Savior, to save His people from their sins. Think about the fact that every single time Mary and Joseph said, Jesus, time to eat. Jesus, time to whatever. Every single time they're saying it. Savior from sin. Savior from sin. Savior from sin. As a substitute, came to save his people from their sins. It's grand. It's significant. It's why we worship Him. It's why we call ourselves Christians because we see ourselves as sinners and we need a substitute Savior who can not bring us most of the way, but who can save us, who can deliver us. I even like uh, cross-referencing with the psalm that we read earlier this morning. He's our refuge. It's where we find safety where it says, cease striving and know that I am God. It's a call to rest. It's a call to rest. It's a call to get off of the spiritual treadmill trying to earn God's favor and rest, refuge, calm, exhale. Because He is not the divine enabler. He doesn't give you just just enough grace so you can make it. No, He saves. He delivers. And we're motivated because of that. Now let's move to to a fourth segment in this drama of Jesus' supernatural birth. And that's the prophetic fulfillment of the virgin birth. In verses 22 to 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold. There's our behold word again. Significant, great, grand, behold, the virgin, quoting from Isaiah 7, the virgin shall conceive. How about that? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us in a way that he wasn't with us. It's not, it's not, this isn't exactly right, but I think in terms of God with us as in God for us. Yes, it's true that He's the divine one who's come here, God with us in Jesus, who's the God-man, but it's God with us in a good way. Because apart from being saved, you don't want God with you. Right? The last thing in the world you want is God with you. If you're a sinner and He's a righteous God. But now, God with us. As in, because Jesus saves. And now things are okay. And we find refuge in Him. This is a reason for rejoicing. This is a reason for praise. This is a reason for worship. This is a reason for significance in life and and hope. He's a saving Savior. Isn't it funny that we have to say that? I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Well, duh. He's a Savior who saves, but we talk so much about Savior and it doesn't even really mean anything. He came to save His people from their sins. He came to run the race for us. Virgin conception. Virgin birth. 
This is really going to help Joseph, but it really should help us. By the way, virgin birth is a great mystery. Virgin conception is a great mystery because we don't know how it works. It's kind of the point, right? The Bible's not saying, well, we're going to explain this for you. No. Supernatural conception. There's no splaining. Can't figure that out. Mystery. It is a mystery. If somebody tries to peddle a so-called Christian book to you, they, we have a scientific explanation for this, so you can, we can prove to you to be a Christian. It's not, it's, you, that's, that's stupid, right? People don't raise from, rise from the dead either. Virgin conception. Virgin conception. Here's a great quote by a theologian I like that's helpful for, uh, regarding this. A mystery is inexhaustible, comma, but a contradiction is nonsense. A mystery is inexhaustible, but a contradiction is nonsense. But we're not talking about a contradiction. We're talking about a mystery. The writer goes on to say, with a little bit more um, wordiness, it's a little harder to follow, but I'm going to read it anyway. Believers revel in the paradox of the God who became flesh. But divine and human natures united in one person is not a contradiction. It's a mystery, because we don't have an example of it outside of Jesus, but it's not a contradiction. He goes on to say, It is not reason, how about this, it is not reason that recoils before such miracles as the virginal conception of Jesus. It is not reason that recoils before such miracles as the virgin conception of Jesus. How about this? Rather, it is the fallen heart of reasoners that refuses to entertain even the possibility of a world in which such divine acts occur. It's not irrational. It's mysterious. And in Christianity and in theology, when we say mysterious, we don't mean, ooh, right? It's a mystery as in, I can't, I can't reproduce this in a lab. I can't explain it fully because there's no comparison. The extraordinary, unique one, born of a woman, born under the law, Galatians chapter 4, who is God with us. I do this with my hands and then I worship one who is not like us and like us who came to save his people from their sins is a great worthy of reveling mystery. Number five, a fifth and final segment of the drama of Jesus' supernatural birth. The supernatural response to the virgin birth. Verses 24 and 25. Remember, we had the natural response, what we would do if we were in Joseph's sandals. 
And now we have a supernatural response because of divine revelation. Number five here, verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So he's obeying. That's the supernatural response. He did as the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. 25. But knew her not in an intimate way, in a sexual way, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. He obeyed. Revel in the mystery of it. He came to save his people from their sins. As for Larry King, the talk show host, not the one who's a member of Omaha Bible Church, who's much smarter and more handsome and intelligent and godly. As for Larry King, he's got the right question. He's got the right perspective. But we also need to remember that Jesus himself taught and his apostles that no amount of evidence will convince anyone apart from God working on a heart. The evidence isn't the problem. There's enough history for Larry King to already have his question answered. Luke chapter 16, verse 31. Jesus, quoting Jesus. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, the Bible, Old Testament there, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Neither will, be they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. We need to remember as Christians, and, and I love to talk about Jesus because I'm a Christian first who's experienced forgiveness of my sins. I'm also a preacher, but we're all called ambassadors as Christians. We need to remember this. We need to remember that the, the, the historic facts are really important. There would be no Christianity apart from the historic facts like virgin conception, like bodily resurrection, like the crucifixion where there's atonement for sin. The historic facts are vital. They're crucial. They're critical. But in and of themselves, they don't save. People must trust in this Christ. And God has to open eyes. God has to soften hearts. So I want to talk about these historic realities and I want to talk to them to everyone I know because I want to love them and tell them about forgiveness of sins and reconciliation and acceptance before God. But I also remember that Jesus himself said, somebody could be raised from the dead, dead and they won't believe. Even if they see it with their own eyes. Their own eyes. So that's why we pray. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for people to believe in Jesus. God uses means. Romans chapter 10 says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so I want to keep telling people the truth and praying that God might work in their hearts because that's how this actually happens. That's how this actually happens. So 
Let me encourage you with that. Let me encourage you this Christmas time to share the gospel with people, to pray for people. Let me encourage you to revel in the mystery of being saved from your sins by the unique one who who is God and man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one mediator between us and God, to enjoy, to embrace, to worship, and to speak appropriately and well of Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for the fact that You have come to earth in the Lord Jesus Christ and It is a mystery to us how all of this works and how it all unpacks and unfolds itself. But we've seen enough even this morning to see that this is part of a grand plan. And this is an unfolding of your grand drama of redemption uh, with Christ at the center of it all. And we are grateful to call him our Lord and our Savior. We're grateful to find rest in him. As the psalmist says, to cease striving and know that he is God. Uh, What a great Savior He is. May we find more joy in Christ this time of year, uh, this year, than we ever have before, regardless of what's going on in our personal lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.